Good morning, my spooky loves. All this month, I am doing ghost stories from Salem, Massachusetts, the witch city. So we gotta start off talking about the witch trials. This is your warning. If you aren't familiar with the history there, it gets dark. Children are involved. It's rough all the way around. So... Heads up! Hello goblins and ghouls, and welcome to my Haunted Life podcast. The podcast all about the history behind your favorite paranormal stories. I'm your host, Angela Hartshorn. How is everyone doing today? I hope everyone had a lovely Mardi Gras. I realized I probably should have done a New Orleans story to end Love Week, but I got crazy behind anyways and completely burnt out. Just terrifying. Because it's only, well now March, but still. It's been crazy around here getting ready for shows coming up. If you have listened to the show long enough, I feel like I say that a lot. So maybe it's just safe to assume it's always crazy around here. I feel like that makes sense. This weekend, I will be at the Albuquerque Oddities and Curiosities Expo. So if you are around, come and find me at the Heart and Horn booth, and we can talk ghosties. Next week, I'm doing the Colorado Springs Moon Market at Cronk Art and Curiosities. Then later this month, I'll be in Dallas for the Oddities and Curiosities Expo there. And then in Norman, Oklahoma, for the Medieval Fair, the first weekend of April. So yeah, it's uh, it's a little intense right now. So please be patient with me. If you have any recommendations on where to go, what to see, what to investigate, and of course what to eat, please let me know. On this week's and next week's episode, I'm talking to Rachel Chris Doan, Director of Education of the Salem Witch Museum. I am absolutely still geeking out about this whole experience. You know, the one with the beautiful castle looking structure with like the red windows. The one that was actually featured in Fallout 4 because I'm a nerd like that. I still cannot believe I got her on my little old podcast. Oh, makes me so excited. As you all know, quite obviously, I'm a bit of a history nerd, hence this entire podcast. And Rachel absolutely annihilated most of what I thought I knew, what I was taught in school, and taught me so many new things I had no idea about. I have been raving about this interview since it has happened, and I finally 
get it out to you and I'm so so excited we talked long enough that I'm going to break it into two episodes so prepare for the first half so let's get into it shall we grab yourself a cup of tea make sure the doors are locked and the sage is close by I have a story to tell you All right, today I am on with Rachel Christ Doan, um, the director of education at the Salem Witch Museum. I did so good not mispronouncing your name until the last second. I always do that. I'm so sorry. It's okay. It happens. <laughs> so <A> panic moment. <laughs> every time, as soon as I have to read something, I screw everything up. So I'm really sorry about that. But yes, we are on today with Rachel to talk about the Salem Witch Trials. I, I do want to talk about you first. Like, how did you become the director of education at the museum? So my kind of path here is uh, kind of a roundabout way. I, I came to Salem kind of completely by accident. I was uh, working on my undergraduate degree, and I was interested in gender studies. I was a history major, and... I knew I wanted to work in a museum, but I didn't quite know what I wanted to do with that. So I had kind of just applied to as many museums in Massachusetts as I could. And the one that had an open job that was paid as opposed to an unpaid internship was the Salem Witch Museum. And I thought, yeah, I could work in Salem for a summer and, uh, you know, worked here as a general staff member for a full summer and just became obsessed with the history, which happens to a lot of people. They kind of find this subject by accident and then becomes an obsession. So I, you know, worked through the summer. I went back to college. I ended up finishing school with a focus on uh, witchcraft history and the evolving image of the witch and how that links up with feminism. And um, when I graduated, I came back to Salem and was really in the right place at the right time. The person who was at the museum who had been Uh, doing the work of the education director. She had kind of a couple of jobs smushed into one title. She was leaving, so I was in the right place at the right time and they offered me the job, which was really, you know, that unfortunately is the way it works in museums a lot. You're just completely in the right place at the right (laughs) time. And I've been here ever since. I ended up getting my master's degree in museum studies and history while working here and uh, you know, I think I'm here to stay forever. You know, Salem's oh. history is just, you can't beat it. It's so interesting. It It's absolutely fascinating because I know all the witch stuff other than obviously the ergot situation, which we're going to talk about. Um, yeah. But I had, we got to visit and I had no idea of like the maritime and the pirate stuff and... yeah. Yeah, the crazy part about Salem is it's known for the witchcraft history, but the witchcraft history is really about, you know, you can say all said and done in a year. Mm-hmm. And the rest of Salem's history, Salem is the first in so many ways. Alexander Graham Bell tests the first phone in Salem. Monopoly is invented in Salem. Oh. It has this rich maritime history. Yeah, you know, you just keep going and there's so many other things. 
uh, about Salem that are just so fascinating, but the witch trials are what we're known for. So, you know, you come for the witch trials history and you end up learning all this other fascinating stuff, which is so neat. Oh, it was, I, I, I couldn't get over it. But I'm I'm in Colorado where we only have a couple hundred years of like recorded history. And then you go out there and there's a few hundred more. But uh what one of the questions that came up was what are your favorite visitor stories from the museum? So let me think. I mean we, we meet very interesting visitors all the time. I think some of my favorite visitor interactions, I guess, are with people who really get this history and are impacted by it. Uh, Most recently, we had someone go through our second exhibit, which is called Witches Evolving Perceptions, and it's all about how the image of a witch is born in this tragic history, but then changes and evolves with time, becomes something so different and fascinating today. So we talk about neo-paganism and Wicca and witchcraft as a spiritual practice towards the end of that exhibit, and somebody came out literally in tears because he was from a place in the country where he identifies as a witch, and he is from a place in the country where you can't openly call yourself a witch. Mm -hmm. So he was like, it's just so amazing to be here and see this in a museum and, you know, have my identity validated, and we were just like, that's so great, you know, this makes us feel so great, you know, we're clearly doing our job. So, you know, I love those stories when people come out and they go, yeah, Mm -hmm. I totally, you know, I got that exhibit. I got the connections to the modern day and everything. And that's the moment where you're just like, all right, all this stress and, uh, you know, long hours of work, it's all worth it in the end. I I got to do the museum many years ago. And yeah, that the second area I was like taken aback with because I was not prepared. <laughs> and I, I like cried at the McCarthy stuff because I was like, oh, right. yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Right. Uh, I've always been curious. The front part, it's almost like set up like a melodrama. Yeah, it's, so it's immersive. So yeah. the reason why we're set up like that is because when this museum opened, it was 1972. So this is our 50th anniversary year. Um, And there really aren't many artifacts from the Salem Witch Trials. There are a handful of documents which are very fragile. Obviously, uh, 17th century paper is so hard to care for and very hard to exhibit. Paper is so sensitive to light and and so on. So there are the documents, and then there's just a couple of items that we know belong to people involved. But that's really it. And, you know, we as an organization just didn't have the budget to display anything like that or to acquire anything like that so we had to get a little bit creative which is why that presentation how that presentation was born so there are these life-size stage sets that are illuminated in time with a narration and the idea was you're looking into these windows to the 17th century so it takes you out of our time and reminds us that these are real people Mm -hmm. they had houses they were married you know they worried about the cold winter and uh, you know, we're afraid of the dark and things like that, you know, and it, it reminds us that uh, the 17th century is not so different from us today. So that was the goal, and I think that that exhibit has really held up over the years. It definitely yes. needs some scholarly updates, which we're working on. There's actually a lot of information that has been discovered since 1972. So we're in the middle of a massive update for that presentation to get it in line with the current scholarship. Um, and we're going to update some of the tableaus so that, you know, with new figures and things like that. But 
the kind of setup of it all, the out, the way it's laid out, I think they really did a good job for 1972, and we're not going to make any major changes to it. Yeah, I was. That was one of the things I was like, "Oh, this is cool," and they like ushered us in to sit, and I'm like, "What is happening?" Yeah, yeah, very different than what you expect during a museum visit, but so it definitely different. brings people here that would are not like we would call the traditional museum goer, right? You know, people who don't really necessarily enjoy walking around and reading panels and things like that. Mm-hmm. This is something that kids can engage with. The kind of non-traditional museum audience can engage with. Uh, you know, it's a, it's a different style of learning, which I think is really neat. No, that's awesome. Like, I, I have to ask, again, a nerd, what yeah. is your favorite original artifact that you guys have? So, we have a beam from the original Salem Jail, which is super neat, and that's one of the few things that we have in our collection with a direct connection to 1692. Uh, and that was found... By accident, there was uh, they were excavating the area where the original Salem jail was, and I believe it was the 1950s, and they found a couple of 17th century beams, which are you know in all likelihood from that structure. So oh, wow. three beams were donated: one to us, one to the Peabody Essex Museum, and one to the Witch Dungeon Museum. Um, and we and the Witch Dungeon Museum have those beams on display all the time. Mm. So that's my favorite Salem object. Uh, in terms of uh, our broader collection. We have something called a Bellarmine jug, which I think is super interesting. Uh, it's a folk magic device from the early modern period. So okay. it's this jug that was used to transport alcohol. Um, so it was being exported from Germany to England, and there are these jugs that have like a human face carved into them, basically. So people in England were taking the jugs um, and filling them with things that you would use for folk magic, so like bits of iron. Uh, hair, human hair, human fingernails, uh, sometimes urine, very gross concoction. And then you take that jug and bury it in your hearth or your doorway. And the idea was if an evil spirit was trying to enter your home, they would see this jug and think it's a person and become trapped inside. So it protects your home. Yes, it's super neat. Sometimes when you're excavating uh, older homes in the in America and as well as in England, you'll find these jugs buried in the ground. Uh, so we were lucky to find one year ago up for sale and um, added it to our collection, and that's on display right now in our second exhibit. So that's, that's such a neat cool. object with a fascinating history. What was it again? I have to look that up. It's called a Bellarmine jug. Bellarmine jug. Okay, yeah, I'm going to have to look that up because I'm like, that just is so cool. I love the old folk magic, especially when it comes into, like, the history. I'm like, what is this? Tell me everything. That's the part that I love the most. Uh, So I have to ask, because it's a haunted podcast and we talk about haunted stuff, is the museum haunted? So this is a question we get all the time, and... Unfortunately, my answer is really boring. Uh, you know, at least in my <laughs> opinion, it isn't. And I know that's not people want to hear it's haunted, but uh, I've never seen anything to indicate it's haunted. And I've been in this building at all hours of the night. I've been here at oh. 1, 2 o'clock in the morning. Uh, in October, we have very late hours as the staff. Oh, God. And, you know, it's an old building. It was built in the 1840s, so it's got quirks that are particular to an old building. Mm-hmm. Like, sometimes you'll come in in the morning and books will have fallen off the bookshelves and things like that. 
But all of those things can really be attributed to it being an old building. Like, the floors are uneven, so if you walk on them wrong, books will fall off the shelves and things like that. (laughs) Old building. I'm not going to say it's definitely not, you know, in case a ghost should hear me. But, uh, you know, in my experience, uh, it has not yet been seen to be haunted. That's amazing. So I have to ask, the building... The building is so cool and ornate and, like, sticks out. What is the history with the building? Was it, like, an old church or something? Yeah, it was. So it was built between 1844 and 1846, um, and it became the Second Unitarian Church of Salem. Uh, So essentially the East Church of Salem uh, was in a different building that was slowly falling apart. So the congregation... um, build this building and move into this building and then two churches combine together and um it stays the second unitarian church of salem up until the 1940s and then um the congregation ends up joining with the original salem church and they go back to uh, different buildings so the building is uninhabited for a while then uh for a brief period of time in the 50s it's an antique car museum and americana museum which is kind of this interesting blip, there were some cool pictures from that time of, there was like an old apothecary shop set up in here, there's old cars in here and stuff, um, and then there's an internal fire that wipes out, wipes out that museum, oh. um, and the, after extensive internal repairs, it becomes the Salem Witch Museum in 1972. That's awesome, because yeah, I'm like, what is this building that's so ornate? <laughs> Okay, that makes sense. Yeah, it's very cool. Like, you know, pros and cons of being in a historic building. The building itself is so beautiful and ornate and has this fascinating history. But then cons, you know, it's very hard to maintain the upkeep of a building like this and making any sort of changes inside is very hard. So definitely pros and cons. I remember the floor being uneven, especially like in in the gift shop area. Oh, yeah. Pros and cons of an old building. That's sure. awesome. So I know one of the questions was, is it connected to the trials? But this is this is built a couple hundred years later. Yes. So the building has no connections to the trials. But interestingly, the land upon which it rests does. Oh. This is the land where Reverend Higginson lived in 1692. So he's the older minister of Salem. Oh. Um, Salem town at this time has two ministers, Higginson and Nicholas Noyes. Higginson is, for the most part, not that involved in the trials. Noise is the one that really takes the lead, which is probably just because Noise is 76 years old, mm. letting the younger minister kind of do the exhaustive work. But um, Higginson's daughter, who was living on this land with him, she was in her 40s and had three grown kids. They're all living with her father. She is accused of witchcraft during the trials, arrested, taken from this land, uh, she is brought to a trial, or she's examined before the magistrates, uh, and she confesses to all kinds of crazy things. She says that she's been making poppets, which are like English voodoo dolls, mm-hmm. and she'd stayed out all night in the woods and things like that. Uh, she, it seems like, is mentally unwell. It's hard to, you know, diagnose someone living 300 years later, but yeah. she's described at the time as crazed in her understanding, so oh. something isn't right with her, which is probably why she confesses to all of those things. Huh. Um, but then she, it seems like she's released. She's never held for trial or anything, which is probably because she's a minister, she's the minister's daughter. Um, 
So, but it is interesting. Her whole story is really fascinating. Um, and it, it's such a quick blip in the trials, but it's a really interesting story. And we're actually doing a whole event about Ann Oliver for Women's History Day this year at the end of March. Oh, okay. Because I'm like, this is not, this. I have no idea about this one. I like, I know more about the victims, but like, I should say that the ones that were executed. Um, right, right. To be a little bit more accurate <laughs> um they, they're all victims but uh no this is fascinating yeah she's a really interesting person i've been doing the, the research for this talk uh over the past couple of weeks and the more you learn about her the more i'm like you are she's a fascinating woman so we're gonna do a whole talk about her and kind of generally women's life in the 17th century for salem's women history day which is wow. march 27th okay yeah i'm gonna have to is there, like, virtual stuff, or do you have to be in Salem? So it's a free virtual lecture, and we're also going to record it and post it on YouTube. So even if you can't come on March 27th, it'll just be recorded on YouTube. So um, one of the kind of silver linings of the pandemic for us is we, we started doing virtual talks, and now I think we're just always going to do virtual talks because we yes. had such a positive response from people all over the country who can't come to Salem who can experience our programming now. Um, which has been really neat to see. So one of the few silver linings of the pandemic. Right. I'm not going to lie. I'm all about the virtual and the grocery pickup. Oh, yeah. (laughs) I don't want that to go away. Uh, I'm going to share that when that comes out. That sounds absolutely amazing. Uh, I also wanted to ask, when is the best time of year to visit? Like, I want to visit in October because I'm that Halloween nerd, and I know it's crazy, but what would you say is the best time? You know, I love Halloween, too. I've always been, like, a passionate Halloween person. But Mm -hmm. to be quite honest, it's getting to a point now with so many people coming in October, it can be very overwhelming. So uh, if you are the kind of person that can handle big crowds and you don't mind, you know, having to wait in line and, you know, things like that, October is fine. But for people who, you know can't handle uh you know the kind of crowds and get feel overwhelmed in that environment it is not the time uh it's getting to a point where you know tickets are selling out for things so quickly in october that sometimes even if you've made plans to come uh you get here and everything's already sold out so the only thing to do is walk around which in and of itself is kind of fun because people are in costume and there's vendors and things like that you know, there's craft fairs going on and stuff like that. So that's still pretty fun. So, you know, seeing, like, everyone should see Salem in October once. But, uh, again, I always just say take it with a grain of salt because <laughs> it can be such an overwhelming experience. But, honestly, I think the best time to come to Salem is, like, uh, late spring because mm-hmm. around that time uh, the businesses that close for the winter are starting to open again. Salem's super pretty in the spring, you know, we're right by the sea, obviously, Mm. you've got that, you know, fresh sea spring smell, which is just so beautiful and lovely, Mm. and also the crowds aren't super huge yet, you know, the, uh, you know, summertime tourism isn't in full swing yet, so you still kind of have the city to yourself a little bit, and I think that's the most fun, you get more one-on-one time with tour guides, you're not getting pushed around in exhibits and stuff like that, so... You know, I'm a big advocate for, like, May visitation. That makes sense. It's not totally crazy just yet. That's good to know. That's that's very, very good to know. But honestly, there's no bad time of year to come to Salem. Even if you come in the dead of winter, 
things are closed, but Salem is still super pretty, and there mm-hmm. are things open and available to do. You know, our museum stays open year-round. The Peabody Essex Museum, for the most part, stays open year-round. So uh, as long as you kind of check ahead of time and see what's available, you know, there's no wrong time to come to Salem. Are you guys open today with the snow? We are, yeah. Oh, my God. We closed this weekend, uh, which was the big snowstorm. Okay. We were closed Saturday and Sunday, but we've reopened. And the streets are pretty much clear now. So, you know, if we can get to work, tourists can come to Salem. So, and, we, <laughs> and we do have people here. The You know, people will come out in the snow, which is always one of those crazy things to see. <laughs> That's awesome. I'm like, I had friends that got to go to Salem during corona and the shutdown they oh, yeah. you know they stood in line with their masks on and everything yeah but they still could not believe how many people were there they figured oh we'll go this year because nobody will be there yeah it was wild <laughs> when we reopened uh, after the first big shutdown people were here right away which is such a you know problem to have we were all kind of taken aback like are you really <laughs> traveling right now but you know and we we i think really did well with the pandemic you know there's a mask mandate salem did so much to keep everyone safe and uh, it really wasn't that bad in the early months and it still isn't you know salem's a really film's really good to its tourism workers they've done a lot oh. to make sure that we're safe good because that, yeah that's really scary when all you do is yeah. work with people constantly yeah <laughs> Oh, my God. Uh, I feel like I could talk to you about museum op- operation all day because I, I love all that stuff. And I don't know why. I'm, again, I'm a nerd. But um, I, no, nerd conversations are fun. Okay, cool. Because I'm like, I don't want to keep you all day. I feel bad. Because I know you're busy. Um, but so let's let's talk about the trials and how things started. Because this whole conversation started because... Uh, the Salem Witch Museum Facebook page posted about, um, uh, it was, uh, the name just slipped my mind. It was the foundation of somebody's house. Yep, the Samuel Paris is, uh, the, so the Parsonage Foundation. Thank you. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> and that's kind of where everything started, correct? Yes. yes. So essentially what ends up sparking the Salem Witch Trials is, in January of 1692, the um, nine-year-old daughter of Salem Village's minister, whose name is Betty Paris, and her 11-year-old cousin, whose name is Abigail Williams, uh, begin to exhibit symptoms of a strange and mysterious illness. So they're falling to the ground, they're screaming, they're writhing, they're making animal noises, and the adults are just terrified. They don't know what's going on, they're trying herbal remedies and home remedies and prayer and fasting, all the usual things, uh, and they're not getting better. And about a month goes by, they finally call in a doctor, and the doctor looks at the girls and says, I don't have a medical explanation for this behavior. It looks to me like the girls are under an evil hand. It huh. essentially means that they're being hurt by witchcraft. Okay. A great and, medical uh, evaluation. Yeah, well, you know, it sounds bad to us today but at the time that was mm-hmm. a reasonable diagnosis you know that was for him it made and for the people of that time it made perfect sense bewitchment cases happened there had been one in 1688 that's actually very similar to what oh. we see in those early months where um a children of a family begin to exhibit this strange behavior uh it's said that they're being hurt by witchcraft and a woman who is an Irish laundress, whose name is Goody Glover, she is accused of being the witch hurting them. 
she's convicted and she's executed. And that case oh. was very well known uh, in 1692. There had been a publication talking about it. So the kids in 1692 would have been aware that that had recently happened. Oh, wow. Wow. I didn't, it's like, it's yeah. one, it's like, it's one of those weird things because it's so after, like, the European, uh, which hunts, I guess, trials? I don't know how you would describe yep. that. Because we're, like, we're late in the scheme of things. Yes. Yeah, the European witch trials are, they begin around 1400, and they come to an end, we can say, about 1750. They've reached their heyday in, like, the mid-1600s. Okay. Uh, late 1500s is when the big witch trials are going on in Europe. So by 1692, they're starting to slow down, essentially. There are still witch trials going on in some places, but uh, for the most part, this is one of the last, like, big witchcraft trials. Salem's this kind of last gasp of an earlier uh, way of thinking. And Salem is particularly unusual because for the English... They didn't usually have huge witch trials. There are some cases that got out of hand, but especially in the colonies, mm-hmm. witchcraft trials didn't tend to involve large executions. Maybe one person would be executed, maybe as many as three. But in the 25 years leading up to Salem, only one person is executed for witchcraft in Mass Bay Colony, and that's Goody Glover in 1688. Wow. Okay. So... What was wrong with the girls? What, what, I mean, now looking back, it's really hard to know for sure, but what is like the big belief now that was affecting them? So that's kind of the million dollar question of the film Witch Trials, right? That's mm-hmm. the one that all of us historians wish we had a, you know, magic mirror where we can go back <laughs> and see. Yeah, because we're never going to know with absolute certainty, which is the frustrating part, until mm-hmm. we find Betty Paris's diary that says, hello, my name is Betty Paris, <laughs> and this is why I was sick, you know, we're not going to know. We can take some educated guesses, so at least in terms of the first two afflictions, um, some historians have speculated the girls could have been suffering from a real ailment called conversion disorder. So, conversion disorder is this uh, disorder that impacts people who are under extreme psychological stress, and this is something that we can observe today, Um, you know, psychologists are aware of and can diagnose today, obviously in 1692, this term does not exist yet, Um, and essentially, a person who suffers from conversion disorder, again, has had this extreme stress on them that's been building, building, building over a long period of time, and eventually it converts into physical symptoms ticks, paralysis, a lot of the things that we actually see those girls experiencing, spasms, um, and this is uncontrollable behavior that, again, is uh, psychological to a certain degree. Uh, So maybe that's what's going on with them. Those two girls are living in an extremely stressful environment. Their father is, slash uncle, is at the center of this huge factional fight in Salem Village. He's the fourth minister to take up the post of uh, in Salem Village over the span of 16 years, which for New England is very unusual. Yeah. Um, and it's because the village just can't agree on who should stay and be their minister. They keep having candidates come in, and half the village likes him, and half the village hates him, and they're fighting and they're fighting and they're fighting until they drive him out of town. Oh. And this has happened three times by the time Samuel arrives on the scene. And Samuel is not exactly a warm and fuzzy guy. He's, um, you know, 
this kind of failed merchant. He had worked in Barbados as a merchant, comes to Salem, he event or comes to Boston and eventually decides to try his luck at the ministry instead. So he ends up in Salem Village and he is very demanding in regards to his salary. He wants to own the parsonage and he and the wow. village inhabitants are going back and forth and back and forth. And in the 17th century, a minister, uh, part of their salary is firewood. So, uh, and the village inhabitants, which sounds silly to us, but firewood in the 17th century is like a life-saving thing. Oh, yeah. Thing, you know? I would love um, for someone so, to pay my utilities. Oh, yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, so, in the months leading up to January, you know, 1691, um, Samuel's running out of firewood very quickly. The village is withholding his firewood. He's he has to beg for it at a certain point, and hmm. um, you know the the family is facing. They could literally freeze to death if they don't have firewood. And Samuel is preaching these increasingly intense sermons where he's kind of guilt tripping the congregants. You know, it's becoming these increasingly intense sermons. Um, that, so this is all, this is a very tense environment. Yeah. And Betty and Abigail are kids, nine years old, 11 years old. They, of course, hear what's going on around them. So do they have these kind of just physical breaks? It's totally possible. Mm. Something that I kind of feel like that, that's the theory that I tend to ascribe to. Okay. We can also say that maybe they just made it up. Maybe they were just completely faking this behavior. They wanted attention. Maybe they had heard about that bewitchment case in 1688 and they figured they could do the same thing. You know, that's the kind of, we're never gonna know, is this a medical issue or is it fake, you know, outright fakery? But, um, you know, either way, um, we know that it starts with the two of them, but soon this behavior spreads and more and more people are afflicted too. And that's when this becomes an even more complicated situation because. Mm-hmm. Conversion disorder doesn't explain, you know, 10 women between the ages of, like, 17 and 40 all exhibiting the same behavior as well. So that's where we have to consider things like outright fakery. Maybe some of those women were suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder. Mm. So we know that several of the people who testify as afflicted witnesses had been living in Maine during the... um, wars with the indigenous inhabitants which are ongoing in 1692 so they had been living in maine and seen literally their towns burned to the ground seeing family members killed in front of them these really bloody oh my god things yeah and as kids they were young when this was happening and then fled to salem as refugees and grew up there so maybe wow when you know your neighbors and friends are telling you there's girls who are here who are being tormented by the devil that triggers a trauma response and those girls react, um, you know, in a, again, a kind of uncontrollable, psychologically based way. So that at least, you know, we can say PTSD for some of these people, again, likely, especially when more and more people get pulled into the fray, there's definitely some faking going on. You Mm -hmm. see people being able to turn their symptoms on and turn them off in the courtroom. Uh, And Betty and Abigail, interestingly, are both out of the trials completely pretty early on. Betty's out by March, I believe, and Abigail's out by, I think, June. It's somewhere along those lines. That date, for some reason, will never stick in my brain, no matter how many times. (laughs) You have a lot of dates, though, to remember, (laughs) to be fair. 
Either way, both of them are taken out and no longer testify by the time the trials are really rolling. So uh, whether or not they're suffering from conversion disorder, that kind of goes away by the time the trials are actually rolling. And then we have to think about all those other people who are afflicted and what's going on in their lives. Huh. Now, I know a lot of it, a lot of the stories, I should say, stem around Tichaba. Right. And so how... Is she, where is she in this picture at the moment? So Tichaba is the slave, she's an enslaved woman who's living in the home of Samuel Parrott. Okay, she is in She and her husband. Uh, So we don't know a lot about Tichaba as an enslaved person. You know, we would know almost nothing about her except for her name if she wasn't involved in the witchcraft trials. Hmm. Um, So she is one of the first people to be accused of witchcraft. The girls... Betty and Abigail, essentially, when the um, pronouncement of bewitchment is made, they say to them, uh, you know, you are being hurt by witches. Who are the witches who harm you? And the girls come up with three names, Tichaba, Sarah Good, and Sarah Osborne. And those three names would have made sense to people at that time. They kind of fit the standard profile of a person accused of witchcraft. Okay. People who don't fit into society for one reason or another. Sarah Good's a beggar. Sarah Osborne had married one of her servants and hadn't oh. been to church in a while. So, you know, kind of uh, socially unusual for women at the time. Mm-hmm. And Tichaba is an enslaved person. So right off the bat, um, the people of this time call uh, the natives. Uh, devil worshippers. They call the devil the black man. So that association between a person of color oh. and the devil is very much there. Um, that's not to say that slaves are accused of witchcraft all that often, but Tichba's name being brought up, people would have just immediately been like, yep, that makes sense. She's a witch. Mm-hmm. Uh, so she is accused. The three of them are accused, arrested, and they're the first ones to be examined as witches. So what, how, how, are they, how would they be examined? So essentially, this is a kind of complicated situation because Massachusetts legal systems, like, kind of up in the air at this point, they had lost their charter in 1684, which means essentially the charter is the document you get as a colony that says this is how you're going to run, you know, under the English umbrella. These are your laws. This is how you elect your officials and so on. That had been revoked in 1684, and they're waiting and they're waiting and they're waiting for the charter. So the new charter doesn't arrive until May of 1692. So without a charter, they really can't try anyone before a court of law, not in a super legal sense. You know, any uh, pronouncement that would have been made could have been challenged, essentially. Okay. But they, they can examine them. So just to see if it's even worth holding them for trial. So they bring these three women um, before uh, local magistrates. Uh, And the magistrates question them. They say, you know, are you a witch? Do you have familiarity with the devil? Uh, They ask them very leading questions. In the 17th century, it's the opposite of uh, a courtroom now in that you are considered guilty until proven innocent Mm -hmm. as opposed to innocent until proven guilty. You are just presumed to be guilty, and it's up to you to prove you're innocent. Uh, So Sarah Good and Sarah Osborne are examined first. They both say, I am not a witch. I don't know what you're talking about. You've got the wrong person. Tichaba is brought in as the third to be examined, and she starts by maintaining her innocence, but she pretty quickly flips and says, you know what, you're right, I'm a witch, and I'll tell you whatever you want to know. And 
you know, that really makes sense if we think about it. Again, Tichuba's an enslaved person. She knows likely that nobody's coming to her defense in this courtroom. Mm -mm. She's not getting off scot-free. She's like the perfect scapegoat for this. So she does what ultimately proves to be the smart thing to do, and she just tells them what they want to hear. She says, I'm a witch. There are other witches hiding in the community. I don't know all their identities, but uh, Sarah Good and Sarah Osborne are witches as well. And that was what they wanted to hear. So they now hold her uh, because they need information from her. And Tichuba actually ends up living through the trial. Okay, I was just going to ask. I I know she's one of the ones that survives. Yeah, yeah. So she's released in May of 1693. So she's one of the last people to be released from jail, it seems. Um, And she's, of course, released back into a life of slavery. So, you know, not it's not a happy ending for her. And we really don't know what happens to her. We know that Samuel Paris sells her for her jail fees uh, to another person. And then she just disappears. We have no idea who that person was or where she goes or what happens to her. She just disappears from recorded history, which unfortunately happens with slaves all the time. Mm -hmm. Wow. That, wow. So what happens to the other two women? Because I'm like, I feel like she kind of threw them under the bus, but at the same time she realizes it's probably the only way she will survive. Yeah, and, you know, she throws them under the bus, but, you know, what do they mean to her necessarily? And she's, she's doing Fair. this for survival, we have to think. So, you know, we can't say that if you weren't in her shoes, you wouldn't have done the same thing. You know? No, same. Um, so Sarah Osgood ends up dying in jail. Uh, okay. I believe she's the per- first person to die in jail. She had been sick for some time leading up to 1692. She hadn't been to church in a while, and she says it's due to illness. And then while she's in jail, she does die. So presumably she wasn't lying about being in ill health. Um, And then Sarah Good is tried, convicted of witchcraft, and she is executed in July. Wow. So Sarah Osborne, the first one who died in jail, and we get all the Sarahs confused because there's a lot. (laughs) But um, there are a lot. (laughs) I had a question with her, and I completely forgot now. But she, is she considered one of the, like, 19? She's not one of the 19, right? No. So it's 19 people are hanged, one man is pressed to death, Mm -hmm. and three, or excuse me, five people die in jail that we know of. There could be more people who die in jail accused of witchcraft. There are people in jail in 1692 who die, um, you know, during this period but it's just hard to determine if they're in determine if they're in jail for witchcraft or for something else. So it's at least five people that we know of um, die as a result of their witchcraft accusation. And Sarah Osborne is, I believe, the first person. Uh, Sarah Good's um, infant daughter. So she has a daughter who had been born. Um, you know, is very young at this time. She's an infant. Her name, we believe, is Mercy. Um, she dies in jail as well, the infant. So she's Aww. considered to be one of the casualties of the Salem Witch Trials. Oh, that's so sad. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Sarah Good's whole story is really sad. Her other daughter is accused of witchcraft. She's four. She's imprisoned for seven months and loses her mind. It's Sarah Good's life from her birth up until the Salem Witch Trials is very sad. Four-year-old daughter? Yeah, she has a four-year-old daughter whose name is Dorothy. She's accused of witchcraft. 
uh, imprisoned, uh, and she's in jail for about seven months or so. And when she's finally released, her father tells the courts that she's incapable of caring for herself. It seems like she loses her mind in jail, and she's never able to take care of herself from that time. So her father petitions for reparations years later, and he has granted some amount of financial compensation. Oh my god, sorry, I'm like, I've never heard this. I'm just sitting here with my jaw just open. Yeah, she's the youngest person to be arrested, oh. at least. Yeah, it's it's very sad stuff. She's four years old. What did she do? Yeah. Is that yeah. recorded? Well, so she's the daughter of an accused witch. And unfortunately, at the time, the belief was witchcraft travels in families, usually pass through the maternal line. So oh you see god. quite a few examples of mothers, daughters, mothers, daughters, and grandmothers all being accused and imprisoned for witchcraft. And when Dorothy is uh, examined, when they question her, she says that she has a little animal companion, a little snake that has bit her finger uh, that was given to her by her mother. And at the time, there's this belief that witches have animal companions Mm -hmm. called familiars, uh, and those animals can be anything, dogs, birds, snakes uh so realistically this child probably just had an imaginary friend or something like that uh but to the men who were examining her that seems totally plausible as she's a witch and to make matters worse her mother has been accused of witchcraft so they keep her imprisoned in jail until she can finally be released i think she's released in like late november early december of 1692 my heart is just like so broken. I, I'm like I wasn't prepared. I, like I figured we'd go over I the know. history and everything, but there's already new stories you're telling me, and it's I know. just well, and oh. new stories all the time. You know, I research this every day, and frequently oh. I'll turn to our assistant education director. She and I both do a lot of research, and we'll turn to each other and just be like, "I've just read this, and I just need to say it out loud because I'm now processing it." And how you know, it's just. Once you zero in on each person whose life is touched by this, the stories are just so sad. They're so tragic. Both the accusers, the accused, the you know, everybody involved in this is, they all have a story of how they got there, what mm-hmm. went wrong, what series of things went wrong to lead them to this place, and it's all, it just breaks your heart to read it. Oh. No, I'm just like, I'm like overwhelmed i'm like i didn't expect all these really new stories yeah, and like you're, you're welcome oh. you know? yeah no thank you i appreciate it it's perfect i'm like no I'm, I'm fine with the downing don't worry about that part but it's just like <laughs> i like my thing is again i'm a nerd i've researched this i've followed all like i'm obsessed with the salem mm-hmm. stuff yeah. I'm, like, shocked I'm learning all this new stuff from you already, and it's only been, like, 40 minutes. This is amazing. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just, like, I am so happy I wrote you right now. You have no idea. I'm, like, <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah, I'm glad. <laughs> the next time I come to Salem, I'm writing you. It's not even funny. Oh, definitely. Definitely uh, do. I do have to talk about one of my favorites, Rebecca Nurse, because... I'm one of those that's supposed to be far related according to the genealogy of my father's side, blah, blah, blah. Obviously far distant. Um, Far, far distant. Um, So where does Rebecca Nurse come in? Because I love her. I'm biased toward her. (laughs) So I have to ask, have you seen the new book about Rebecca Nurse that came out 
last year? I think it came out in October of last year. No. Okay, so you have to buy this book. Yes. Uh, it's written by Dan Gagnon, who works at the Rebecca Nurse Homestead. It's the first biography of Rebecca Nurse, and it has been, the historians of the Salem Witch Trails have just been singing its praises. I'm about halfway through it. It's so good. It's so well-researched. Oh, my so God. Especially for descendants or people who are just interested. Um, the title of it escapes me. It's like... Rebecca Nurse, uh, you know, accusation and execution or something okay. like that, and it's by Dan Gagnon. No, so you have to read that book. I am gonna go look uh, that up. I was like geeking out we, when I was playing on the on your guys's website. You had the Descendant yeah. packets. Yep, yep, yep. We do. Those are that our so cool. um, myself and our assistant education director have been the ones we created those packets. Oh, they're ongoing. We're expanding them right now, and that's actually it's been so interesting because. That's the thing where you zoom in on a person's life and you're like, right, this is a person who, you know, had disappointments and, uh, you know, love and mm-hmm. jealousy and children and heartbreak. You know, these are just regular people who end up swept up in this horrible moment in history. But uh, when you start to really look at them as people, that's really when uh, I think that we can the, the event makes so much more sense, you know, mm-hmm. this kind of baffling event, how could this tragedy happen, is when you start to think about them all as individuals is when it really starts to make more sense, so that's oh. my pitch for the Descendant Packets, because it's very, even if you're not a Descendant, just reading about each individual person is super interesting. I also want to say they're only like $10. I was shocked they that are. they were only $10. <laughs> I'm like listening, like reading everything that's it. I haven't gotten a chance to order mine yet, but I'm going to because I saw that and I almost died, and I was just like... <laughs> They're all really because I'm like this has to be like fifty dollars, and then I was like, oh, it's only ten, so definitely. Okay, writing them and the amount of time and effort that goes into them, we're like these should be fifty dollars, but uh, but it's good that they can, you know, they're pretty affordable for just anybody who wants to learn more about a person. And I've met quite a few people buying them in our store who aren't descendants but just want to learn about Giles Corey mm-hmm. or you know Wilmot Red. So oh, I mean anyway, Giles is it? A- <laughs> I mean. Giles Corey is his own thing. Oh, my God. But, uh... Yeah, that's a whole other thing. His story is also extremely sad. Yeah, oh, my God. Well, it's funny because one of... Uh, I work out of an art center, and uh, there's a woman who's a... Ha, runs her newspaper out of it as well. And she was so excited because she went and did, like, Ancestry.com or something. Mm-hmm. And... She found Hartshorn, which is my last name, which is where we're, like, second cousins or something to Rebecca Nurse, something like that. And she found this, and she brought all this genealogy to me, and she's like, look, we're related! And I'm like, you know who this is, right? <laughs> she, she didn't know. So Now she does. Now she does. So she's my cousin Rhonda, and we're, we're related to Rebecca Nurse. That's, like, my cool nerd history thing. It is an interesting history thing. That's always a fun. And you'll be surprised. There are so many people related to Rebecca Nurse and John Proctor, kind of specifically. Mm-hmm. Both of them, Rebecca has eight living children you know, who oh. live to adulthood. And John has 17 children in his life. And I think like 11 of them live to an adult to adulthood, 10 oh. or 11, something like that. So, you know, having that many children, you obviously have a lot of descendants. So, wow. Um, the people, it's. Uh, Rebecca Nurse, John Proctor, and Susanna Martin are definitely the people involved in the Sandwich Trust who we meet the most descendants from. That's cool. I'm like, I love that. So you've got a lot of relatives walking around out there. It's so funny, because you think of these small little 
communities you don't expect a whole lot of people to come out of them but then you realize oh they're right. having like 10 children each it makes sense right exactly exactly oh that's so funny so anyways total sidebar i'm really sorry about that yeah um no no it's okay <laughs> so where does my girl rebecca come in so rebecca is she's accused relatively early on uh so essentially the accusations go uh sarah good sarah osborne tichaba martha Corey, and then uh oh Dorothy good and then rebecca nurse i didn't realize so, martha Corey was Elizabeth Proctor's in there somewhere too so <laughs> early giles is uh, wife. Yeah. accused quite early. Um, oh. She's kind of considered like this transitionary person. Um, so again, those first three women accused are easy accusations. They mm-hmm. fit the kind of standard profile of a person accused of witchcraft. Martha Corey is unusual because she's a member of the church, uh, which is a big deal in the 17th century. Uh, church at this time isn't a uh, structure. It's a body of people people who believe that their souls are saved and they're destined for heaven, this whole predestination business, um, and be, being accepted into the church is a really big moment in a Puritan's life that not everybody achieves. So Martha is a church member, but she's also got some scandal in her past. She has a son who's referred to as mulatto, so she has a son who is you know, ambiguously oh. not white. Uh, it seems like out of marriage, so that's some scandal or past. We don't know a lot about that, but we huh. know that that gossip is circulating. But later on, she joins the church. She gets married again to Giles, and uh, she considers herself a very spiritual gospel woman. Uh, so she, because she's a member of the church, but also has scandal, is kind of like a transition accusation, you could say. Mm-hmm. And from her, you start to see the kind of floodgates open. It's no longer the usual people who are being named as witches. You certainly see people named uh, in the coming months who uh, fit the profile or have been, you know, suspected of witchcraft in the past. But you also see people like Rebecca Nurse being accused. So Rebecca at this time is 71 years old. She's the wife of, uh, you know, a prominent farmer. You know, they're doing pretty well for themselves. They have eight living children. She's a member of the church. Nobody's really ever had a bad thing to say about Rebecca. So the fact that she is accused of witchcraft is shocking. People are like, no way is Rebecca Nurse a witch. Um, So she's accused. They kind of, they go to her house. They let her know she's accused. She's shocked. Everyone's shocked. Um, But the accusation moves forward, and eventually uh, she is brought to trial. She is ultimately found guilty her family does everything they possibly can to prevent her execution. They petition. They have a letter that's, uh, you know, signed by uh, this incredible amount of neighbors in her on her behalf. They file a petition to the governor, uh, but unfortunately, it all comes to no avail, and she is executed, which was shocking. There were a lot of people who were, uh, you know, just appalled to find that someone like Rebecca Nurse who had never seen in any way hinted at being a witch before, you know, that she could be executed was really appalling. So, and again, with the naming of Rebecca, you start to see other people, prominent people in the community named and accused of witchcraft, which uh, is one of those major things that differentiates Salem for the witch trials that had come before. Huh. Uh, so I'm, I'm, I remember learning in, 
some book I read that like Rebecca was one of the first ones accused and now I'm, I'm like I don't think that's right but I so I thought maybe she was next that's why I asked about Rebecca yeah, I, so she's in that early group yeah say. she's one of the initial accusations she's just she's a you know a couple of ticks down you could say you know mm-hmm. her specter is viewed pretty early on but she's not exactly the first person okay uh, one thing I, I didn't know this when we were out there was there is a Rebecca Nurse homestead. Yes. Yeah, so a lot of people miss it because it's in what is today Danvers. Okay. So at the time, Salem was what is today Salem and also Danvers and also, uh, you know, parts of the surrounding area, places like Peabody. Um, Peabody. In the modern day, they have separated into their own, you know, cities and towns. Um, in 1692, Salem Village, which is today Danvers, was in the process of separating from the town. They're the ones that are trying to form their own church. They've got this minister problem that's going on. That's basically their first step towards being their own independent town. Uh, they won't actually get independence for decades still. Huh. Sometime in the late 1700s is when they actually get to be their own independent town. Um, but a lot of people, like the early events of Salem, the early accusations, a lot of the people who were accusers and accused all live in what is today Danvers. So I always tell when I work with student groups, uh, the t- term Salem Witch Trials is a little bit misleading because the trials themselves, you know, with the court of Oyer and Terminer, they happen in what is today Salem. But most of the early events all happen in Danvers. People from all across Essex County are accused of witchcraft, you know. Uh, it's really happening across um, a much bigger area than what is today Salem. And a lot of people, when they come to Salem, they don't necessarily know that, and they don't know to go to Danvers and see the homestead. And yeah, I did. And Witch Trials Memorial <laughs> in Danvers as well. Oh, yeah. I, I was like, I thought every, well, first of all, I thought Salem was this cute little out-of-the-way country little... <laughs> village and thank god somebody yeah. warned me that it was like basically downtown before i yep. got there um but yeah no it was very spread out i that was one of the things i was surprised about i'm like oh and i wish we had more time because yeah we would have went and visited um but i was always yeah, there will be a next time don't worry um but um how was because i know a lot of times when these people were um, uh, I can't think, accused, that's the word, uh, of being witches, they lost their property and assets and everything. So how was this able to stay in her name? So this is kind of a misconception of the witch trials. Oh. Uh, this is one of the pieces of our presentation that needs to change. You know, it's, it's older scholarship, this idea that you lost your property if you're accused of witchcraft. So that's actually not true. You okay. can lose your assets, so uh, your cows, you know, your livestock, uh, monetary, uh, you know, like gold rings and things could be taken. <laughs> so if you're accused of witchcraft, possessions could be seized legally. Okay. Um, but your land could not be taken away from you. So the family, you know, was uh... not in danger of losing their property. This is one of the misconceptions around Giles Corey as well. Yeah. That he, uh, you know, stands mute um, and is pressed to death because he doesn't want his property taken away. Yeah. That's actually not true. It's more that he's trying to make a point and saying that I don't recognize the authority of the court of oil and terminer. That's why uh, he is pressed to death. He's, it's, he's basically saying this is a corrupt
to court and I know I'm not going to be found innocent anyway. And he's mm-hmm. making this bigger statement, which is an even more interesting story when you kind of strip away the whole land dispute issue as not being part of it. Thank you to everyone out there listening today. A huge thank you to Rachel for once again being on the podcast. I still can't get over it. I am, ah, uh, uh, my heart. Uh, this, uh, I love the Salem Witch Museum when we got to go. Uh, I'm still geeking out about this entire experience. Uh, and I probably will for quite some time. If you are interested in more pictures, info, and my sources for this episode and past episodes, check out the website, myhauntedlifepodcast.com. I promise to get the website updated with all of the info for Salem and the February episodes very soon. I so wish I could work in the car without getting carsick. With all the driving that's coming up, that would have been great. Anyways, make sure to subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss an episode. Next week will be the second half of the interview with Rachel. And it's just as amazing. If you have a ghost story to share, email me at myhauntedlifepodcast at gmail.com. And make sure to tell your friends and family about the show. Word of mouth goes a long way. You can also follow My Haunted Life podcast on all the social media platforms. Facebook, Instagram, TikTok. If you like what you hear and want to support the show, please subscribe to the Patreon page. You can support the show for as little as $2 a month. And I'm working on getting that updated as well. I think because all this month I'm doing Salem stories, I kind of want to do a Massachusetts cryptid thing. We'll see what happens. Music is by Ghost Stories Incorporated. And that's it for this show. I'll see you all next week on my Haunted Life podcast. And until then, stay haunted.